Today will be given by Ellen Webb. Ellen is a Berkeley native. When she was 20, she moved to New York City to pursue a career in dance. She moved back to the Bay Area in 1984 and built her own dance company and studio in Oakland, often collaborating with her husband, Sandy Walker, who is a visual artist. Ellen started her sitting practice with Joko Beck in 1992 and was later a student of Diane Rossetto. She came to Berkeley Zen Center in 2002 and was Shuso in 2018. Soja Roshi gave her the name Maiko Kaishin, Dancing Light, Open Heart. She is the mother of two 30-something children and the grandmother of two little grandchildren. Thank you, Ellen, for coming today to give a talk and share your practice with us. Thank you for your introduction. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about um, the fruits of practice as I see them. And I think, I think that we all come to practice with some at least niggling idea that we're gonna get something or that we want something from the practice. And um, I certainly did. Um, although it's a little hard for me to remember exactly what it was, but um, I, I didn't get what I wanted and I did get something else. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, and of course, very early in our practice, we hear the word no gaining mind and um, we realize that sort of wanting things to be different or grasping at some outcome is actually a hindrance to our practice. And today I'm going to start um, with just the beginning of um, a poem called The Song of Zazen by Hakuin. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Um, and maybe a few of you are not. Um, <clears throat> uh, probably know there's many water images in Zen literature um, and um, could probably do a whole talk on water images. Um, two that kind of come to mind are the wonderful chapter in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind um, about the waterfall and also um, the ocean and mind waves. But this is a little different, um, and um, I'm just going to say a word about Hakuin since he isn't um, sort of one of the ancestors say that we chant in the morning. And because also I had sort of a lot of difficulty myself in placing these ancestors in various places and times. So um, just very briefly, um, Hakuin um, is a Japanese teacher and is really thought of as uh, um, a forefather of um, the Rinzai tradition. And um, he's, uh, he, he's thought of as sort of a kind of restorer of Rinzai Zen in its vibrant form. And he also developed the koan practice and study that's generally done in Rinzai temples. Um, <clears throat> and this very poem is chanted regularly in Rinzai temples. Um, so he sort of historically, um, when we think of our ancestors, we sort of think of our Japanese ancestor, sort of a major one as Dogen who taught in the 13th century. And Hakuen 
is also Japanese, but he taught really in the 18th century, so really 500 years later, much more contemporary. And um, he um, started his practice at a young age at a time where um, <clears throat> Rinzai Zen had become sort of part of the, almost part of the government or the bureaucracy of the government and, um, and had sort of gone into a spiritual decline and um, for, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred years. And um, he sort of broke free of that and um, kind of started a um, practice in a remote part of Japan and um, very small, very poor. He welcomed um, women and lay people as well as monks as his students, which was quite unusual at that time. And um, <clears throat> sort of slowly built up a, a, a large following and a number of disciples. Um, aside from being a teacher, he was also a highly regarded um, artist, calligrapher, and I think poet. I'm not sure how highly regarded as a poet he is, but certainly even outside of Zen tradition, he's sort of known as a, you know, it's significant and kind of unconventional and iconoclastic artist. And he, um, yeah, so, um, so I'm going to read the beginning of this poem, um, <clears throat> which begins, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. I'm going to read it once more. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. So, this is a strong image for me, and it also addresses that kind of constant question of, well, if we're Buddha, um, why do we have to practice? <laughs> but I'm going to leave that and, and just talk a little bit about sort of the power of this image for me. Um, Because I feel that we are sort of often frozen or stuck in our separate selves, in our sense of separation, and <clears throat> in our stories about ourselves, our identity, and the way we perceive and construct our worlds. And we lose touch with our kind of sense of oneness. Um, and I'll just talk a little bit about how I think this happens. Um, I do have a new grandbaby and um, I spent quite a bit of time with her right at the time she was born and for a couple weeks after. And um, I've had the feeling with her, but I have it almost with every newborn, that they come sort of directly from the absolute or oneness or Buddha. And they just open their eyes and it's like they're just completely part of everything. And um, it's a kind of an amazing experience just to be with them and to like watch them and um, they of course don't have concepts and they don't really have preferences in the sense that we think of them. Um, kind of one minute they're like completely relaxed and sort of smiling and happy and then you know their little faces scrunch up and they just start crying to break your heart. 
um, kind of like sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, or the clouds come and they go, and then tears come, and then the sun comes out, and um, uh, it's life as it is, and um, really letting it come and letting it go. Um, there's like the sense of impermanence and flow, and still, it's not idyllic. I don't want to say it's idyllic because newborns cry on average between three and six hours a day. And given that they sleep a lot, in their waking <laughs> hours, they cry a lot. Um, so there's a lot of discomfort and pain. Um, but as I say, it's like it just kind of goes from one thing to another and there isn't the kind of holding on and planning and sort of clinging that we do. But pretty fast, they learn how to get their needs met. Um, food, clean diapers, sleep, love, all those things. They figure out how to communicate their needs and what works and what doesn't. And hopefully they have a caregiver that's attentive to their cues. And this is just absolutely essential for survival. We wouldn't survive if we didn't figure out how to get our needs met. They realize eventually that they're separate from their caregivers and they become their own little people and they build their own identities and their own stories about themselves. I also have a two and a half year old grandson and he's learning how to manage the world. He can be charming. He can be adamant. He can be sort of seductive. And he hears what other people say about him. And he sort of absorbs that and has little stories that he sort of tries on about himself. Um, he says, he watched the World Cup and now he says, I'm a soccer player. I'm a striker. And, um, he says, I'm a nature detective. And he says, I'm a bunny. So some of these things will last and some of them won't. <laughs> the bunny's kind of held on. Um, so in my own case, I came from a family of three children. And um, it was a fairly functional family, I'll say. Um, but when I look back, and I've actually talked to my siblings about this, I feel like we kind of divided up the qualities that you could have between the three of us. <laughs> um, my sister was very smart, a good student, and very dramatic, kind of moody. My brother was rebellious and kind of bad all the time, kind of a problem. And I was the middle child. And I was good all the time and um, sort of contented and happy. And people said that about me and I believed them. And I, and it worked in my family well to be that person. My father said I was the light of his life. Um, I was a people pleaser and a performer. And those are the things that I held on to as I became an adult and moved out into the world. And in a certain way, you could say I was stuck with that. Um, and there were things that were hard for me to manage, like grief or sorrow or so on. Um, when I started sitting with Joko back, I actually started, um, I decided I wanted a sitting practice for my own reasons. And um, I started sitting weekly up um, at a small zendo near my house in Oakland. Um, that it was in Diane Bozzetto's house. And um, four times a year, Jill Gobeck came up and um, led a session. Uh, and usually there were four days. And I had not ever done a session, um, but I signed up for it. Um, and. Um, Nobody suggested maybe I should do a one-day session before I did a four-day session. 
So it was um, quite a challenge for me, uh, physically, in all the ways that it is. Um, <clears throat> and Joko really encouraged people to kind of talk to her. And so I went and sat in the, what we call Doku's online, and um, I uh, waited my turn. And then I went into the little hut, and I sort of arranged myself and and I, I'm sure, just knowing me, that I had some good question to ask her, um, or at least a question, maybe not a good one. But um, when I looked up, I, I just looked up, and she was looking at me, and I looked into her eyes, and she was looking to my eyes, and I just started crying. Um, and I didn't ask my question. And she leaned over and put her hand on my knee and said, you're doing very well, Ellen. Now go back in the zendo and sit. Um, and um, looking back on that, I think she saw that I was, and I didn't see this, of course, but that I was maybe starting to melt a little bit. Um, and um, at the end of the session, she suggested that I start a daily sitting practice in my house and I find a quiet place to do that and sit maybe just for five or ten minutes a day. And um, so I found my spot and I got a Zabutan and a Zafu and um, I started my sitting practice. And very soon, I mean within days, um, I just was a wash in sadness. And it was such a shock. I had no idea that I had any of this. I had just really, really walled it off. And um, you could ask, I think, is this a fruit of practice? Here I thought I was happy. And suddenly I'm like really filled with sorrow. Um, but I would say yes. Uh, for one thing, it felt like a huge relief. It was just like, I have been trying not to feel this my whole life, and it is just a relief. I also kind of felt like I was disintegrating in a way, almost physically. But again, it was liberating for me. Um, and, and there was some funny joy in it, even though I was really holding this sorrow. Um, and I guess the last part of this is that if you don't feel sorry, sorrow, there's probably a lot of other feelings that you don't feel. And um, this was kind of a beginning of being aware of that and opening to it. Um, so in our Zazen instruction, we're taught to um, bring our awareness to our breath um, and really to kind of inhabit our breath in a certain way. I mean, we begin sometimes by counting it, but then um, we just sort of almost become it, I think. Um, we attend to our posture and um, kind of how our sit bones feel on our cushion or our bench or our chair. Um, you know, where our pelvis and our head are in relation to each other and um, maybe the place that our thumbs touch in our mudra. And um, we also are aware of the emotions that we have, the feel, those feelings in our body, and then the sounds in the room, what's going on in the room, and, and even outside the room. So it's a kind of expanded awareness. And when we attend to those things, um, it's like we break away from our 
sinking, um, and which is generally pretty consistent and solid. And um, we, you know, when we make that shift from sort of whatever we're th our thought is and bring our awareness back to our body or our breath or, you know, the sounds in the room or our just more expanded awareness, um, we disrupt kind of our, um, our, our way of thinking and our stories about ourselves and our stories about the past, we break them up in some way and they begin to get a little bit less um, solid. Um, <clears throat> and it's not, again, that we push our thoughts away, as we say so often, but they live in this sort of expanded awareness. So they're part of it, but um, they don't have the solidity or the constant sort of relentless um, vigilance that we put into planning our lives and making our lives work for us. Um, we sort of um, crack something open. Um, and I want to emphasize here that we don't give up our practical thinking completely. Um, both Joko and Sojin and actually Hozan are very practical people. And um, all of them have encouraged me to kind of continue to be practical in the world and get my problems solved in one way or another. Um, but um, there's some kind of shift in the balance of power between our thinking mind and our more expanded awareness. Um, and we begin to bring more of this other part of ourselves to our lives, a kind of responsiveness of our feeling and of our uh, physicality. Maybe our people would use the word intuition. Um, and there's a kind of relaxing in that. Um, and the mind gets maybe softer, uh, more flexible. <laughs> I don't really mean this in the sense we often, often use it, but kind of bigger, like it encompasses more um, of our awareness or our possible awarenesses. Um, and there is a kind of trust in this that everything isn't just going to fall apart. Um, I think we have to give up a little of our knowing, of our thinking we're right all the time. Um, but in a way it's like an opening, it's just like bringing more of ourselves to the table. I'll read a little quote from Suzuki Rushi. You know how to rest physically. You do not have, know how to rest mentally. Even though you lie in your bed, your mind is still busy. Even if you sleep, your mind is busy dreaming. Your mind is always in intense activity. This is not so good. We should know how to give up our thinking mind our busy mind. So I'm just going to check my time here. Um, so another way that I've kind of looked at other possibilities than normal or normal for me of kind of being with my, what I think of as my mind is um, through koan study, which, um, I started, um, I don't know how long ago, but many years ago with Sojin. Somebody who saw that Ron and Ryushin and I were going to lead a study group um, about koans um, reminded me how much I hated them when I first started studying them. 
and um, how much I complained about them. And um, I kind of came to them with the idea that I could solve them. Um, and um, kind of like, an, they sort of looked to me like algebra problems. You know, there's this, and then there's this, and there's this. Kind of like the train goes 25 miles an hour, and the bus goes you know, <laughs> miles an hour. Those always looked impossible to me, but I could figure them out if I really worked at it. Um, so that was kind of my approach to koans. And um, so I took these classes with Sojin, and Sojin was very um, sweet to me a lot of the time, but in that class he got pretty irritated with me, actually, <laughs> because I just couldn't let go of this. And um, so um, I stuck with it. I'm not totally sure why, but partly because um, I could see that I just couldn't use my logical mind to do this. And I had to use something else. And um, I had to bring something to this that I was unfamiliar with working with. And um, so, uh, I mean, it was really like hitting a dead end. It was like I couldn't get there. Um, so gradually I kind of used what I, was sort of aware of, which was kind of my emotional body, my physical body, my sort of expanded body, um, my bigger mind, maybe. Um, I asked Hozan um, kind of what language he would use for this. And I sort of liked what he offered me, which was to bring your whole self to it. Um, and um, so anyway, over time, I've become kind of to really love the koans and to feel kind of like there are folk stories in our tradition. The other thing about them is that um, in these interchanges between, that are sort of recorded between these monks and teachers is this amazing spontaneity and kind of um, unpredictable behavior um, that uh, is really just like this amazing response to the situation or to the statement that's been made. And um, that's always kind of exhilarating for me. Um, so I will say that in my world, this kind of open-mindedness um, is creative and open to new possibilities. As I said, Hakuin was a great Zen teacher, but he was also an artist and a calligrapher and a poet. Um, and he was very, again, open and in a very unusual way for his time to his subject matter. Um, he painted beggars and Zen masters and fish, dogs, cooking pots, um, really embraced the world as it is. Um, And I think creativity kind of requires breaking free of kind of convention and habitual thinking. I once heard a story, somebody just told me this, um, that when Einstein was stuck and he couldn't solve one of his great problems or questions, he lay down and um, sort of was supine and he wouldn't go to sleep, but he would just kind of open himself all the way up to, to letting the solution come to him. And um, I like that.
image. I'm gonna kind of segue here to a few um, sort of parallels between my creative life, my dance life, and um, this practice. Um, and I'll just say a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> one is that I worked for a time with a, really one of the great dance improvisers um, who just was so kind of um, present and um, spontaneous and again, very surprising in the work she did. Um, she was also a good dancer, but um, just completely inventive really. And um, she was interviewed by someone once in a magazine and they asked her kind of how she did what she did. And um, she used this image. She said, you know, you know, the chihuahuas of your mind, the ones that bark at you all the time. She said, you know, the ones that say like, oh, the critic from the New York Times is here today. Or um, I don't have the right clothes on or, oh my gosh, that was awfully good. Or whatever that just keeps going all the time. She said, I asked those chihuahuas before I start, I say, you need to sit and stay and not bark for the next hour. And then I can go into the space and be present. And that was what she did. Um, when I began to make my own dances, um, I had been both studying and performing for many, many years with teachers I thought were, of course, the best, the greatest. And um, so not only did I think their work was wonderful, but actually their work was in my body. That the way I moved was the way they moved. And um, so when I went into the studio, I was just like, who am I? And what's my movement? And so I, I had this practice of my own where I would like have to escort my teachers out of the studio before I started. Like I would put my arm around Merce Cunningham and I would say, I really appreciate everything you've taught me, but you need to leave me alone. And that was done. It's been wonderful, but I need you to leave. And then I would begin to be able to figure out who I was and what my movement was. And I feel like in this practice also, we have wonderful teachers. I've had wonderful teachers and I have wonderful teachers and many of them are in this room. But at a certain point, um, I think we need to sort of think about what our practice is, what we're doing on the cushion, who we are here. And I'm actually gonna stop there and just finish up with one more watery poem. And this is by Uchiyama Roshi. And it's called Life and Death. Water isn't formed by being ladled into a bucket. Simply, the water of the whole universe has been ladled into a bucket. The water does not disappear because it has been scattered on the ground. It is only that the water of the whole universe had been emptied into the whole universe. Life is not born because a person is born. The life of the whole universe has been ladled into the hardened idea called I. Life does not disappear 
because a person dies. Simply, the life of the whole universe has been poured out of this hardened idea of I back into the universe. So, um, I could just sit with that for a moment and then if people have questions. How does it work on Zoom, Gary? Do you know? Uh, they raise their digital okay. hand. Okay, you should raise your digital hand if you have a question on Zoom. Um, yeah. Yoni. Can you read the poem again? Sure. Life and Death. Water isn't formed by being ladled into a bucket. Simply the water of the whole universe has been ladled into a bucket. The water does not disappear because it has been scattered on the ground. It is only that the water of the whole universe had been emptied into the whole universe. Life is not born because a person is born. The life of the whole universe has been ladled into the hardened idea called I. Life does not disappear because a person dies. Simply, the life of the whole universe has been poured out of this hardened idea of I back into the universe. <coughs> Do you have a question, Jose? I do. First of all, thank you. Um, and uh, the part that you were, the point that you were making at the end is something I've spoken about a lot from my own Zen training and my musical training. That you know, to really honor uh, those who led us here and respectfully uh, invite them to. Leave the room or sit in the side because we have to find what's authentically ourself, not what's imitated. But the question that I had, it, and I don't think we're gonna, I don't, there's some play in my logical mind, which is what you warned against at Koans. Uh, in the Hakuin verse, this without. Without water, there's no ice. Um, without beings, there's no Buddha. Is that, is that correct? Uh, fairly correct. Uh, <laughs> let me just get it completely right. It's been actually right. This, 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 the logic there, or the syllogism, is it's kind of flipped when you talk about frozen. So which is frozen and which is unfrozen? Um, you mean in terms of Buddhas? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that is straightforward. Um, I don't I, think it is. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 initially it appears to be, oh, like, you know, this makes sense. Yeah, and then does. when you really think about it, yeah. uh, I got caught there. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think they're entirely parallel. I think um, for me, the kind of kernel of it is that um, uh, <laughs> again, that we are Buddha. And we don't realize it. I think that's the kernel of it. Uh, and so why don't we realize it? <laughs> Thank you, Alan. When you were describing escorting your uh, dance teachers out so you could perform more openly and be yourself in a studio, I can understand that. And yet, in your movement outside of the studio, there's probably some residual 
teachings that you uh, garnered or learned from uh, dance, and likewise in our in our dharma practice, that we don't just practice in the zendo. So how do you um, let go of or uh, escort along with maybe uh, your uh, teachers in all the forms that you've uh, learned as a um, uh, as an adult, and also find your own way, your own expression. How do you how do you balance that? Well, actually, you asked a slightly different question than I thought you were going to ask. So, do you mind if I answer that one first? So I thought you were going to say, well, how do you get rid of this, you know, physical learning that you've had for 20 years or whatever, uh, in, in terms of dance? And I would say you don't. You never, ever, ever do. That you know, if you were to see what I created, you would know who my teachers were. You would just know, um, even if I really tried not to let you know, um, which I did a lot. Um, uh, so, again, I just think it's that bigger self, you know, it's all there. You don't shed any of it, but sometimes you need to make a little space for yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Mira? Um, the point that you made about starting to practice and not knowing you had all the sadness in you, I think that um, that resonated with me and maybe with other people. When I started practicing, <clears throat> I, all this anger came up in me. And I thought of myself as someone who didn't have anger. I would have actually told, I think I told people that, oh, I don't get angry. You know, that doesn't happen to me. And all of this I recognized from practice. So practice really opens us up to um, these emotions that are suppressing. Like you said, we have a human face. So then we become a fuller, more complete person. So that is something that I agree practice really I really want to thank you for that because, as I say, you know, I was sort of stuck in this persona of being cheerful all the time. But people have their own, everybody has their own way of being um, also. You know, everybody has their own thing. Um, and, you know, my, a lot of what came up for me was sadness, but um, maybe I haven't tapped into my anger yet, but it could be there. <laughs> um, but I think it's really different, really different for everybody. And, uh, you know, I thought I was a nice person. That's why I could describe Ellen, it's really hard to hear the questions in the Zendo. Oh, yeah, Could I thought you... maybe it was. Um, so, Mira, what, I'll try to say what Mira said, um, if I can. And, Mira, please correct me. But she sort of um, agreed that in the sitting practice, um, she really related to what I said that a lot of sadness came up for me. But she said that for her, um, a tremendous amount of anger came up for her and that she'd always thought of herself as a very nice person and it was a bit of a shock for her just like it was for me um you know to have these other feelings sort of break free in in practice joe i was wondering in relation to the uchiyama uh, poem how the ideas that he's expressing about the whole universe being ladled in or the whole universe being emptied out, how, how that affects your interactions with a newborn or your interactions with uh, um, those who have passed away. Um, the, the poem sounds great. But I was wondering how it actually relates in your everyday life with, with you know, the joy of, of life coming in and the uh, sorrow of uh, life emptying out. Um, 
Thank you for the question. And um, did, did you hear that one? Yes, yes, okay. I heard that one. <laughs> I would say, and there's of course many, many um, writings and poems and so on about life and death. The waterfall is another great example of that. Um, And I think what I would say for myself is that in some way, and it is kind of mental, although it's somewhat physical too, I guess, the waterfall one in particular is sort of physical for me, but that it, um, it sort of eases it for me. It's sort of, uh, you know, kind of, I guess I would use the word believing in this flow um, allows it to be more um, kind of acceptable or I'm more accepting of it. And um, in the particular, uh, that's just not how it is for me at times. And I have to accept that too. That I totally resist it. I mean, we're talking now more death than life, but um, uh, I don't want it. I don't like it, uh, and so on. So it's it's really it's like it's really hard for me to explain. It's like both those things are completely there for me, and I don't want to pretend like they're not. We have a question from Janae okay. online. Hi, Janae. Ellen, hello. Thank you for a wonderful talk and uh, really evocative. Um, I love both of the poems. I wanted to go back to the the um, Hakuin and actually Hosan's question. Um, when I was hearing you respond to that, it seemed to me that the part about um not not the part about water but the part about um there's no buddha without human beings it was what came up was you know we can we can say there is such a thing as zen buddhism we can say there's soto zen and rinzo's rinzai zen but actually that doesn't exist apart from us it's that it's that notion, that book, you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. It's really just each one of us that embodies and enacts and personifies and hopefully, you know, becomes that. And there's nothing, there's nothing abstract outside of that that we can point to. That's what came up for me. And thank you very much. Actually, that, that came up for me, too. Uh, I, I'll say, uh, I also just want to point out because somehow it's important and I'm not even sure I completely uh, buy this, but um, he says, not that all human beings, but all beings. All beings. Yes, that is important. Very important. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Tara. <laughs> and I'm actually in the place right now where, kind of like you were describing with the sadness, anger is suddenly emerging. And I, I'm almost a little ashamed to admit, I literally thought to myself last night, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have never started crapping. <laughs> <laughs> I know that wasn't better. So I, my question is, when you notice that you are resisting the thing that's emerging, and what I'd really like for it to do is just go away, what do you do with that? Um hear the question. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> so Taryn said that she too was noticing that um, in her practice that she had thought of herself as a very unangry person. And um, 
she's suddenly noticing quite a lot of anger coming up. And um, she's sort of saying when something comes up that you're, that you basically don't like, uh, what do you do? How do you handle that? And I think, I'm hoping she's asking me personally because that's the only way I can answer. Um, I think I'm really good at repressing. Um, so um, for me, it's almost, again, this funny word comes up, it's this joy when I realize that, oh, I feel that, you know? It's like, and it's kind of this almost like bemusedness, like, really? That's there for me? Um, and I have to say with you, I'm a little bemused and amused too. So just because I know you. <laughs> There's a question from Sandeep online. Hi, Sandeep. Hi, Ellen. How are you? Welcome back. Yeah, I just got back from Gringo. I know. Great time. And your talk, I feel things are really moving and soon. So I really thank you for that. And um, I feel I'm going to confess and hopefully you sense I'm repenting. Um, there was a great block to connecting with you. Aha. Yes. <laughs> and words matter, and I feel like I was hanging on to wounds. My heart is a bit open, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> I had such an awakening with Reb, so I'm very, I, I could cry for how grateful I am. We really are in it together. And I, I do feel I was born in this brown body as a small woman in America for a reason. And I'm finally cultivating the strength to hold the energy of the karma that we all need to cleanse of America. And how well, can we do that together? Yes, and thank you so much. I just really, really appreciate hearing that from you, and it brings tears to my eyes too, actually. Um, it really does. And yes, um, hopefully, you know, we can be close. Let's grab tea sometime. Yes, let's. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for our Sangha as well. And thank you. We can stop. <laughs>